0: i'm I'm actually a little bit anxious this morning because there's something that I think God wants me to share, and I want to get it out. <laughs> uh, been kind of uh planning because this next week is going to be a very busy week for Sherry and I as uh, we're going to pastor's' development days and and there's a birthday sherry's mother's eightieth birthday and and so there's a whole bunch of things, and, and so I'm preparing for this week, and I'm preparing for next week, and I'm getting excited about where God is leading us. So uh, hopefully I can, uh, I can share with you this morning. Father, as, as I share this morning, this gathering is about you. Our mind, our focus is on you. And so I pray, Father... That nothing here is about us but it's all about you and Lord that we would have open hearts to hear from you we pray in Jesus name amen anybody know who Francis Chan is there's a few few of you know I I love to listen to Francis Chan Uh, he he is a man who when you see him it, it just comes out of him, this, this love for God, this love for people, this, the, the, this, this love that he has for the lost. And as he shares, he has this powerful way of sharing, and, and, it, and it really impacts people. And so this morning, some of the things that I'm going to share come from his uh, messages on the mission of the church. And so I've titled this morning what church <laughs> Isn't that the response you get from people? You say, "I'm going to church on Sunday." "What? <laughs> church?" <laughs> what is that? And and so we have this question of why have church? Why have church? What is church? What is church all about? Church is not a place that we go to. Church is not a place where we attend. Church is who we are. Church is who we are. Church is the family of God. We actually just sang that, didn't we? I didn't tell Dale what to what, what to sing. But it was interesting that this is really what we're talking about. The family of God. Of God. Now, I'm going to ask you something, and, and I'd like to ask you for some quick responses. What does family mean to you? Love? Relationship? Sport? Sport? Support. <laughs> oh, support. <laughs> it's sporting as well, right? Trust? Trust? Support. support, yeah. Tolerance. <laughs> Tolerance. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> We tolerate people in our family, right? Yeah, family is all those things that you mentioned. But family is somebody or or a group of people that we're related to, right? We're related to in some form or another. Whether it's kinship or whether it's just a community that is together for a particular reason, It, it could also be a people group. I have seen uh, some ethnic groups so tightly knit, they could be arguing against one another and somebody from another people group could say something and they're all together. Instantly they're together. And church is also a family. Here's what First John chapter 3, verse 1 says. How great is the father the love of the how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that's what we are God is the father and we are his children we are part of his family Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 says this for this reason Paul says I kneel before the father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. His whole family. That's more than just this group here. That's the international church. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So in other words, the one who makes us holy, which is God through the Lord Jesus Christ, And those who become holy, which is us, are of the same family. We are of the same family. We here of the Penticton Nazarene Church are a family. But we are also a family of every single person who believes across this whole world. No matter what denomination they come from. No matter what their background is. We all belong to the same family. The question is, how do we know that? Well, we know that. Well, yes, God said so. But we know that because we are born again into the family of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody tells you, I have been born again into the family through the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that they are part of that same family. We also know that we are part of the same family because we have God's seed in us. We are filled with, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in you and in you and in you, we are part of the same family. We know that. Another way that we know that we are part of the same family is we begin to look like Jesus. Isn't that true? If you ever know, I'm just going to use an example here. My my mother-in-law passed away some time ago. But more and more, my wife looks like her mother. I know they're part of the same family. I also know that my daughter looks a lot like my, my, my wife. She's part of the same family. How do I know? They kind of look like each other. But it's not just looks, right? It's actions as well. You know, there's something we pick up from our parents. You know, dad acted like this, and what do we see? We see the son acting like his father. The daughter acting like her mother. We know that they're part of the same family because they begin to look like their parents. As we begin to look like Jesus, we know we are from the same family. There's another thing, and that is that we carry Jesus' name. We are Christians. We carry the name of Christ. So then... We come back to this question. Why have church? Why do we meet together? Why do we come together on any particular day? Well, we know that we come together to worship. We come together to fellowship. We come together to disciple one another. That's what the Bible tells us, right? This is what we do as Christians. I want to uh, go to a passage in Acts chapter 42, verses or chapter 2, verses 42 to 46. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, uh, I think this is a great passage to follow along. Uh, and if you're not following the Bible, listen. <laughs> because I think this is a very important passage. Here's what this passage says, beginning in verse 42. And and this is talking about the family of God, the... the uh, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Enjoying the favor. I I want us to just put a mental note there on that statement. From this passage, we can make a few deductions that worshiping together or, or meeting together as a family of God and coming to church has some elements. You know, we, we sing, uh, we pray together, we, we reflect, we reflect on the Lord, uh, we do some reading in scripture that's very meaningful to us. Uh, we, we come to give our offering, our tithe. Uh, we uh, come to hear from the Lord through preaching. Uh, we come because uh, we s- want to serve one another. And, and really, that's what this passage is talking about, isn't it? It's about the gathering together of the saints. I like the way a fellow by the name of Fred Bittner describes worship. And he describes worship in this way. He says, worship is anything you do that declares the worth of God. Anything that declares the worth of God. He goes on to say, which deepens your relationship with Jesus. And and then he says, and urges others to follow after him. I think that's pretty profound. I think he nailed it. Worship is anything you do that declares the worth of the Lord, that deepens your relationship with Jesus and urges others to follow him. What this really is about is more worship of God and less of me. It's more about God and it's less about me. I want to talk about fellowship In this context as well, let me ask you, and I'll get you some response from you. What is fellowship? Looking at it from a church context or, uh, yeah, from from the context of being corporately together, what is fellowship? Brothers and sisters loving each other, encouraging each other. A couple more. Praying for each other, holding each other up, thinking of each other. Here's what Webster Dictionary writes. Fellowship is companionship. Fellowship is companionship. And then it goes on to say a community of interest, activity, feeling, or experience. An example it gives is a unified body of people, equal in rank, sharing, sharing in common interest, goals, and characteristics. I think that's very, very excellent definition. In other words, fellowship in the church context is talking about, and it's been mentioned, the relationship that we have with one another. It's talking about the relationship we have with one another. It's talking about this interpersonal connection that we have with one another. It's talking about the communication that we have with one another. It's talking about sharing and partnering together in everything that we do for the cause of Christ. That's really what fellowship in the church context is all about. It's also, I think, what we see in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? It's exactly what we see because they took care of everybody's needs. They not only talked to each other and worshipped together, they had companionship with one another, and they helped one another. And so it comes to the next point, which is that the church has a mission. In the context of the church, I want to go to uh, Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And there is no greater passage in the Bible which refers to the mission of the church than this passage. I think most of us are very familiar with it. But here in this passage in verse 19... Jesus already makes this point. He says, all authority has been given to me. So we know Jesus has authority to make this statement. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, I know I've, I've had people say, okay, uh, yeah, but what does it mean to make disciples? And we want to make a big deal out of what this actually is all about. But I say this. If somebody says to you, go make a friend, go make a friend. You've moved into the new neighborhood, go make a friend with somebody. You know exactly what that means, don't you? To make friends is very clear. That's what Jesus is saying. Go make disciples. It's as clear as making a friend. Go make disciples. Everything that we talked about this morning really centers around Jesus and the mission Jesus has for us as a church. We can't carry on as a church if we don't put this statement first because that's what church is all about if we forget this particular statement and set it aside we are no longer operating as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ this is the key focus of our purpose this is key This is the commission that Jesus has given us. This is what he told us to do. I'm I'm going to make a complete shift here. Uh, And I want to make a shift because there's a point to the direction that I want to take us. And And it's going to seem off the wall. But that's okay, because you're going to understand in a few minutes. Anyone here a hockey fan? Oh, we, we, we got a few. Uh, and I know some of you might not be hockey fans, but some of you are V fans, right? Okay. Uh, so I'm going to start, start with this. And it, it doesn't have to be about hockey. Uh, it, it can be about any sport. We can use the same example for any sport that we might have a love for. But I want to use hockey to make my point. Next thing I want to ask is who was here in Penticton in 1953, 54, and 55? Just let me have a show of hands. very few people who, are here, who are here. Some of us weren't bored yet. Okay. That could be true, but I know that there is a number of elderly people Uh, in our community, and many people have been here in 1953, 54, and 55. And the reason I ask that is because I do want to talk about the Vs. And and here's what I want to share. I've looked this up, and, and according to the Ellen Cup records, the Vs played for the Ellen Cup in 1953. What do you think happened in 1953? No, they actually lost. They lost the cup four to one. Yeah, just hang on. I don't, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> the next year, 1954, the V's went to the Allen Cup championship and they won this time four games to three. Now comes 55, right? In 1955, the V's were chosen out of all of the Canadian hockey teams in Canada to play in the championship to play in the Canada or the World International Ice Hockey Championships they were called to represent Canada now the russians won the hockey the international hockey ice federation championship in 1954 and in 1954 they were deemed as the new powerhouse of hockey around the world. And even still today, Russians are very much respected because they had developed this reputation of being a powerhouse. What happened is is that the V's, Penticton V's, were chosen to represent Canada in the same year, as well as the Russian team. Well, nobody believed that a team coming from Town of 10,000 people who are basically apple and peach growers could put together this team that was even suitable for such a competition. After all, we have to remember that the Russians were choosing from two billion or two million, no, 200 million people. At that time, it was about 200 million people that were living in Russia. So the Russians were drawing from 200 million people to put together their best team. Penticton was drawing from 10,000 people to put together their best team. But to the world's surprise, the the, the V's won every single game in that competition. All eight games they played, they won every single game. What's even more surprising is that out of those eight games, only six goals were scored against the V's. Sixty-six goals is what the V's scored. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, we say, wow. They also beat the Russians in the championship game Five goals to nothing. They shut them out. This was, this was absolutely fantastic. What was seemingly impossible, they did it. They did it. And we have to ask the question, how? How in the world, not, I'm just using the world as an expression, but it's true, how in the world did they do it? How did they accomplish that? Well the answer is really this, they played as a team. They teamed together. And there's another very, very important part of this whole formula is that they were united. They were not just a team, they were united together. I played on a few teams and I know that there's always the hot shot on the team the guy who thinks they can do better than everyone else, the guy who hogs the puck, the guy who hogs the ball, the guy who will not pass to the guy who's wide open because they think they can do it better. That's not playing as a team, that's not unity. The V's won because they worked together in unity. And this didn't happen because they went on some kind of a retreat before this, this whole series started and, and decided that, you know what, in order to become unified, we all need to get together in this uh, uh, retreat and, and become chum-chum, and, and then things are going to happen. Uh, they didn't just sit in a circle and, and, and hold hands together and, and pray and say, okay, now we're one, now we're unified. They also didn't depend on the talent that they had. Because I believe the Russians had probably twice as much talent as this team did. But they had a common goal. They all had their eyes on exactly the same thing. They all focused. They focused on one game at a time. They were selected Because people in Canada said, you're our team. And so they focused on winning one game at a time. They focused on the goal. They focused on the championship. If they had any chance of winning at all, they had to play together. They had to. Otherwise, it would have been impossible. So here's the point. Having a common goal unites us. Having a common goal unites us. I found this picture, and I thought it was a great picture. It's the cross. And what do we see? One goal. One goal. And people going towards that goal. Being united Striving towards that one goal. The V's won because they were striving in unity to that one goal. Here's what Francis Francis Chan says, and I want to quote him. He says, You don't develop unity by trying to develop unity. Doesn't work. He says, you develop unity by having a common goal. And when you have a common goal, and that goal is the obsession of your life, then unity is going to happen naturally. And I think it's true. As a church, we often think that, well, you know what? We are going to put together some services Uh, We're going to do some get-togethers. And and if we can get together as a church, then we're going to create this unity. And then we're going to be a church. It never works that way because unity is always about a goal. If we get together for the sake of getting together, there is no goal and there is no unity. Unity is about getting together and moving toward a goal. It's about the objective we have. When we collectively come together and agree that this is the most important thing, this is our goal, this is our purpose, we will become united. Having that same goal. We'll become united not only because we have this goal, but we will become united because that's the only way we are going to achieve that goal. We will never achieve that goal if we are not united together. Only happens as we work together as one. Why am I sharing this this morning? I think it's obvious. I want to talk about the mission. The mission of the church. There's a passage in John chapter 17 where Jesus Praise for his disciples. Jesus is about to be arrested. And of course we know the story. Jesus gets arrested and he knows, he knows that his time here on earth is short. It's almost finished. He knows that he is going to be crucified. He knows that he is going to die. He knows that he is going to be raised from the dead. He knows that he is going to go back to the Father. His mission is done. And so he prays. He prays over his disciples. And, and I want you to read this passage if you possibly have your Bible with me. Go to John, uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Here Jesus is praying he says this he says my prayer is not for them alone who is Jesus addressing he is addressing his father he's talking to his father he says my prayer is not for them alone my prayer is for those who will believe in me through their message whose message are these others going to believe The message of the apostles. So Jesus isn't praying for his disciples at this moment. He's praying for you and me. He's praying for us. Us who are going to believe through the disciples' message. And he says, he prays this, he says, that all of them may be one. Jesus' prayer is that we as a church become one. And he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And then here is the thing that is most profound out of everything. He says, so that. I like that word. He's telling us we gotta be one. He's praying that we would be united. And then he says, so that. And then here's the words the world may believe so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't it a bit strange that Jesus prays this prayer? It, uh, let's just think about this for, for a few moments. Jesus is saying, My prayer is that we all become one so that the world may know and believe. It it seems to go against everything that we have learned about evangelism, doesn't it? Because here's what we've been taught. You want to have someone come into the kingdom? What do we do? We pull out the scriptures, right? Right? We learn all of these verses how to, how to show people that, that they are sinful and that they need to be saved and so we pull out the scriptures. But, but the world doesn't believe in us. They don't believe us. They don't believe that the Lord Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he came into this world, that he walked the streets, that he died on the cross, that he went back to be with his father. The world doesn't believe that. So we have this question that says, how will they believe? What will cause them to believe? Our mission, Jesus says, is to make disciples. To make disciples. As I mentioned, you know, we, this all goes against our traditional understanding because we think, okay... I'm going to use the scriptures. In fact, I am going to show them in the Bible exactly what Jesus is about. And then it's up to them whether or not they believe. And we may even say, I'm going to be convincing. I'm going to pull out all the prophecies In scripture and I'm going to show them all these prophecies that were written 500 to 1500 years before Jesus which are about 300 prophecies and all these prophecies have been fulfilled and we can show them and say look it happened it was spoken about here and it happened here and surely people will listen and go yeah I can't deny it I don't know how it happened but all these things were predicted but I still don't believe then we think, okay, well, okay, maybe, maybe we need more than Scripture. And, and, and maybe we think that if a miracle happened, if they could see a miracle, then they would believe. And, and let's say someone was here this morning and, and, and their leg was amputated. And, and, and we think, okay, you know what? We're, we're going to pray for them. We're going to bring them up here on the platform. And, and then we're going we're to call our church leaders. And we're going to surround them. And we're going to pray for them. And, and so we lay hands on this man. And we begin to pray. And we ask God to, to bring healing, to restore this leg. And, and as we demand it of God, all of a sudden, this leg starts to grow and form and become complete. And all of you sitting there would go, why didn't I bring my neighbor this morning? If my neighbor saw this, they would believe. That's what we think. We might think, okay, well, that's kind of an impossibility. That's not something very probable. It's true. But then we might think of it this way and say, you know what? If we had this dynamic worship team, that, that, that just sings these, these heavenly melodies. And if we had a preacher who, who preached this awesome message and we could bring this person into this place, then they would believe. It's interesting because Jesus doesn't take that perspective. You, you know what? Jesus already knows what works. Jesus knows what works. And he says this. He says, You want people to believe in me? You want people to believe in me? Then be unified. You want people to believe in me? Be one. Be together. Do you realize that this is what Jesus prayed? He didn't pray when he, when he came before his father. He didn't say, Father, I want to ask you to empower them with the gospel message. I want their message to be more powerful. That isn't what Jesus prayed. Jesus didn't pray, Would you give them the special power to bring healing upon people so that they would believe? That isn't what Jesus prayed. He didn't pray for more prophecy or more miracles or more preaching. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do these things. I'm all for the fact of presenting the gospel at the right place at the right time. But Jesus prayed this, Father, that they may be one. That they may be one. You and me and I and you. They and us so that... So that, and that's the goal, isn't it? So that the world would know. I want to go back to this passage in John chapter 17. And I want to go to verse 23. And here in Jesus' prayer, he says, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Unity. To let the world know that you sent me. That you sent me. To believe in Jesus and that his father has sent him into the world. He says, I want them to be brought to complete unity. Why complete unity? In order to let the world know that you sent me, what does our unity have to do with a proof that Jesus is who he is and that the Father sent him? Everything. Everything. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's the proof? The unity, the love. How will they know that they have been with Jesus? By their unity, by their love for one another. How will people know in this world that Jesus is the Christ and would believe in them? The unity. This was proof and evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive in you and me. If we want evidence... If we want to convince people, the evidence is between us. You want your neighbor to believe in Jesus, they better see it between us. Because that will convince them to believe in Jesus. What did it say in Acts chapter 2? They were all together right? They were all together. They were united. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And what does it tell us at the end of the, that, that particular passage? It says, all these people came, right? They saw what was happening and they began to join in. And it says that the Lord added to their number added to their number because of what they saw and now believed I don't know if you get this but this is huge this is ginormous this is bigger than we can possibly comprehend We wonder why our churches are not effective today. We wonder why our seats are half empty. We wonder why people are falling away because they don't see the Lord Jesus Christ in you and me. They don't see it. Because what they see is you sitting over there and somebody sitting over here because they don't want to get close to you. They see us on the streets avoiding one another. That's what they see. They don't see Jesus. They don't see him at all. That's why they don't believe. That's why they don't trust us. If we want to see this change, we have to. We have to become unified. And they see what's happening in our lives. They will begin to love Jesus. They will fall in love with Jesus. This is is really the goal that Jesus has given us. This is our commission. This is the commission of the church to be united. Is there anything more that God wants for the church? Everything happens around unity. Unity. Everything else, no unity, we got nothing. If we're not unified in our prayer, we don't have a prayer. If we are not unified in our worship, we don't have worship. If we're not unified, we don't have outreach. Is there anything more important in your life than working for Christ? Oh, yeah, but I got to live, right? I got to put food on the table. Does that prevent you from being unified? I got to play this sport or I got to be involved in in this community activity. Isn't that an opportunity? Not a hindrance? Right now, there are people all around you that you know that you rub shoulders with. We're on their way to hell. Because they don't see Jesus in us. It's about a week ago. I, I just I love to come into this room and just pray in the mornings. And I was here praying about a week ago. And there was this thought that came into my mind. And as I was thinking about it, there, there was this vision that came into my mind. And here's the picture that I, that I had. I saw the gates of heaven. And they were open. As I walked into the gates of heaven, there was Jesus with arms open, ready to embrace I saw thousands upon thousands of angels. And in the middle were all of these loved ones and friends and family who were there ready to greet me. They were grinning from eye to eye, from ear to ear, eye to eye as well. And I thought, wow, this is quite a reception. And I can't even remember the picture around all of this, it was heavenly. It, it, I, I can't even think of how to describe it. it, it there are no words that describe it. it. It was just there, and as I reveled in this picture, there was another thought that just—it just hit me. It just about knocked me over because this was the thought: How would the lost be received into hell? How would the lost be received into hell? What would their reception be like? I know what mine's going to be, but what would their reception be like? And as I looked, it was dark. It was hideous. It was frightful. It was painful. There was pain. There was anguish. And I I, I had to look away because I didn't want to see that picture. It was dreadful. And, and this, this fear, this fear came over me. That's what it's going to be like for every person that doesn't know Jesus. That's what it's going to be like for the niece that just got married and doesn't know Jesus. That's what it's going to be like for the father, the mother, the sister, the friend. Yes, daughters, sons, everybody that doesn't know Jesus that is ever close to you. Never ending reception into the darkest place. Then I said, God, what can we do? What can we do? I think that's where he brought me this week. What's the mission of the church? His answer, that they may be one, that they may be one. This is the prayer for me. This is the prayer for you. This is the prayer for us. I want to leave you with this here this morning. I want to ask you you to ask yourself these things. Am I veiling the revelation of Jesus' salvation by my disunity with the church? Am I veiling the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ by my disunity? Am I putting a bad taste in the hearts and in in, in the minds of the unbelieving that I rub shoulders with every day? Am I putting a bad taste in their mouths, in their hearts? Am I really truly one with you and you? And you? Am I truly together with you on this? Am I on a mission? Is this church about Jesus or is this church about me and what I want? What I prefer? What I'd like to see? Jesus' prayer was. Was to bring us together, to unify us as one. Jesus' prayer was about reflecting his image, his family. It was about giving real, concrete evidence to believe in. I don't know where you sit. I don't know what's going on in your, in your mind, in your heart. I don't know if you want to be one with Jesus and one with one another. I know I want to. It's where I want to be. I don't want to hinder anyone from the kingdom. I want to be the cause that they come. I'm going to ask our worship team if they would would come and just softly play. And I don't know whether the Lord is moving in you this morning or not. But I know that I want to pray. I want to see you as a church become one. And I want to confess my sins. I want to ask you if you want to confess your sin and that you want to pray this prayer of Jesus I want to invite you to come to come to the altar and to ask to ask for this forgiveness to ask that if he would come I want to invite you to come as as a band just play softly I want us to come and just lay ourselves before the Lord this morning. If you need a few moments to just think about it, I can't convince you. The only one who convinced you is the Holy Spirit. I know I've said some things about the church that are not uplifting. I've said some things about people that are not encouraging, that have torn people down. And I know that this is not helping the cause of Christ. invite you to come come to the altar this morning Father this morning we confess before you we confess our sin against your church Father we may not have I may not have realized what I was doing we may not have realized what we were doing we may not have realized the damage that we are causing we may not have even understood it maybe our eyes were, were on ourselves and not on you God forgive us for taking our eyes off of you and putting our eyes upon ourselves forgive us Lord Jesus forgive us father help us to see the importance of being united together help us to see how that proves that you are the Christ the one whom you sent into this world father that it's about him it's about our salvation it's about our eternal future God I pray that you would you would come into this place and you would fill us fill us father with the presence of your Holy Spirit empower us father with the presence of your Holy Spirit empower us father to live lives so good So holy that people take notice. Let us love one another as Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. May that be so that people would see that we have been with you. God, we we love you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We want our lives to make a difference. And family and friends and people all around us. Strangers. Father, begin to use us. As we become united together. Father, may they see the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be for your kingdom. For your glory and your honor we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.